Madness Podcast. We are here with the Honorable Rob Whitman, representing Virginia's first and America's first congressional district. How are you, Rob? Mike, it's great to be with you. Also with you too, Matt. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Awesome. Awesome. Now, um, you know, I'm also not Potomac local as well. I've heard, you know, your race is heating up. Um, and recently I just saw, I saw you at a criminal justice forum. Yes. And I'd like, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. I know criminal justice has really come a long way as not just, it's not an issue with the right or the left. We're pretty bipartisan in what we want. We don't want the wrong people going to jail or going to jail for, you know, a long amount of time for a small crime. So what are, you know, for our listeners that might not have, uh, seen the debate or read um, papers across the first district, what are you doing um, to help with criminal justice reform? Well, I think one of the biggest uh, steps that we have taken is, is passing the First Step Act. And I was proud to vote in favor of that. That's, that is the first meaningful and significant criminal justice reform in the past quarter century. Significant as to how it looked at minor violations, how it looked at sentencing, how it looked at at drug violations, as we know, we want to be able to focus on addressing the substance abuse and addiction, not filling the system uh, with individuals that have the need to have their, their drug addiction addressed. Uh, and you don't do that normally through the criminal justice system. So having things like drug courts, also the Veterans Treatment Court Act that just recently passed that I was a co-sponsor of another important step in criminal justice reform to make sure we're doing everything possible to help veterans, to, to seek out mentors for them. Many times they, they've hit a, a snag in their lives, giving them that second chance, giving them a mentor in the veterans community to help get their lives back together and to get back on that path of, of a productive life, I think are key. So there are a lot of things that have taken place there. A lot of attention to Mike has been focused on what happens within the realm of law enforcement today. And to a person, as I talk to law enforcement officers across the district, they absolutely want to make sure that officers are held to the highest standard, that they're held to their oath, that they are accountable, and that their departments are transparent. The last thing they want are bad actors. So the question is, is how do we do that? And in today's political back and forth, I think it's incredibly important to recognize the things we need to do, and that is helping those law enforcement officers get the training that they need, help them in the teams that they create with others to make sure that they can address these issues, making sure, too, that we enable local and state law enforcement to do the jobs that they know need to be done, but also how to do those jobs. I don't think that this should be federalized. I think that those officers and law enforcement departments know exactly what needs to be done. Many times there's a need for resources and, and the effort I think needs to be that they are properly resourced. Uh, make sure too that we give them uh, the, 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 the proper tools to do the job. And listen, I, I, am, I am in complete faith that they will be able to do that. And they see what's around them. And the last thing they want is, is a situation like we saw with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, those things, I think, are, are things that absolutely they want to do everything they can to avoid and, and want to make sure, too, that they are provided the necessary and proper protections. You know, a lot of debate about qualified immunity. And the bottom line is qualified immunity says if you do your job properly, if you do it in accordance with the policies, protocols and procedure of the department and if you follow the law, 
you don't have to look over your shoulder and worry about frivolous personal lawsuits. That, that ought to be the things that we are doing uh, to help law enforcement. Uh, they they want to be held accountable, but they also want to make sure, too, that they're not constantly subjected to the threat of lawsuits when they're doing their job properly. That because I know your your colleague uh, Justin Amash, I guess former Republican now, I guess he uh, identifies as libertarian, was one of the people that was trying to push uh, for bipartisan support to end qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that that he's made an issue of that. So with like Tim Scott, for example, have you gotten to talk to him about the Justice Act? I have. In fact, I'm, I'm a co-sponsor of the Justice Act. Senator Scott has done a tremendous job in talking to folks in the law enforcement community, as well as folks in the minority community. Remember, he has, he has experienced many of the things that we hear from the minority community today. So he has firsthand experience, but he also has had extensive conversations with the law enforcement community. And I think his perspective on what you do to make sure you're providing the proper protections to officers at the same time assuring that they are held accountable and that there's transparency in collecting data about who may be one of those bad actors, I think is the right balance. Well, certainly okay. that, that is incredibly that, important. And you were I, talking to me earlier about um, asking Rob about what's going on with our naval. Yes, I had. Um, that, okay, there you are. You're I got you back. Um, <laughs> I was asking, of course, your role in Congress is so important to our naval port in Norfolk, and it is so important to have those federal dollars coming, especially now that we, it's not guaranteed that we will have Congressman Taylor, I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent, I'm just saying that we don't know if Congressman Taylor is going to come back as an appropriator on the House Appropriations Committee. If he wins, if he loses, we don't know. So because we've lost an appropriator, and we're getting real into the weeds here, and I apologize to our listeners, but this is, this is very important to the policy of the Commonwealth, is that when you lose an appropriator, um, you have to have somebody fighting to make sure that we have our aircraft carriers sitting in Norfolk and not in Florida. So can you uh, talk a little bit about that so we can address that issue from your perspective? Absolutely, Matt. I, I'm very honored to serve as the ranking member on the Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee, which is the subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee that oversees the Navy, the Marine Corps, and all of the strategic assets in the Air Force that are tankers and lift aircraft. So it's a very expansive job. And we've been very blessed in Virginia to have leaders through the years that have served in that capacity on those committees. I think it's incredibly important for our nation. It's incredibly important for the Commonwealth, especially since we have so many sailors, Marines, and airmen that serve here. It's incredibly important because we have a, a, a large population of veterans who've had that experience that are very knowledgeable about that. It's, uh, it's an incredible privilege and honor, but also a challenge uh, as I serve on that committee to make sure that we're doing everything necessary for that nation. Uh, if you look back in history, there has been for the past 60 plus years, somebody from Virginia in a senior leadership role on the House Armed Services Committee. That does make a difference for our nation because of the experience that we have in Virginia with our active duty military and our veterans advising members of Congress that serve in those leadership roles in Virginia. And it also assures that Virginia is going to be treated fairly 
as it plays a critical role in our nation's defense. Without that, you're exactly right. There will be efforts exerted by members in other states. And we know that uh, the military in our state plays an important role for this nation, an important role to Virginia. And our efforts have been to make sure that that, uh, that, that decision-making includes uh, the perspective of this great population of veterans and active duty military in Virginia, as well as what Virginia has done in support of our military uh, through, through uh, gosh, the last hundred plus years. It, it's, been, it's been there at the forefront, I would argue, even, even longer than that. So I think it's, it's incredibly important. It's a, it, it's a big job, but it's also a great opportunity for Virginia. And, and my effort is to, is, to, is to not only be in this leadership role, but to advance that leadership role. I, I would like to do even more in leadership on the House Armed Services Committee. Obviously, one of the elements is to, is to be able to get reelected, and listen, this campaign is going to be about, you know, what should the role of our military be? We see threats like China and Russia and in turn North Korea and Iran. And I believe we need to be doing everything we can to stand up to those threats. I believe those threats are significant and they are growing. My opponent doesn't believe that. He believes that we should actually shrink funding from the military. In fact, at the uh, criminal justice debate the other night, he actually talked about taking resources away from the military. In face of what we see from China, the aggressive behavior there and Russia, the last thing we need to be doing is to take resources away from the military to weaken it, to keep it from modernizing, to keep it from being able to address the threats that we see around the world. The world's a safer place because of a strong United States military. If we weaken that, I argue, the world becomes less safe. Well, Congressman, would you say that that's one of the, the top five issues facing your district? Uh, yeah, military security. It's it, it's in the top five. Listen, people are concerned about COVID nineteen in the economy. Those two go hand in hand. They're concerned about things like rural broadband, which is incredibly important. They are concerned about public safety, which is also important. That means what are we doing to keep our communities and Commonwealth safe? And they're also very concerned about national defense, Mike, as you point out. So yes, that is in the top five. And what's incredibly telling about that is people are really concerned about China. They're concerned about what China's doing to us in stealing intellectual property, what they're doing to try to weaken the United States, both economically and strategically. They're worried about the threat China poses to this nation, not only now, but in the years to come. And remember, China has a long-term perspective on how they view themselves in the world. And their view is to displace the United States as a world power. In fact, what they want to do is to hold the United States subservient, and they are doing everything possible to achieve that. And, and don't think that if somehow the United States capitulates, that, that it is going to be better for us. It is not. The only thing that China understands is power. And China is ruthless and relentless. They will do everything they can to try to defeat us, and they'll use any means by which to do that. And we've seen that. I mean, they are unafraid of getting in and and, and stealing uh, trade secrets from us, from uh, you know, attacking our, our defense systems. Uh, we cannot underestimate what China will do or the threat that China poses to this nation. And military is crucial to your district because like Matt pointed out, you're right near Norfolk and you have Quantico in your district. Um, you know, this is, this is something that's developed over the past 24 hours um, and, and I guess kind of just added to the docket of questions we have. Um, bringing up national security, Right now, it's rumored late last night, I think I texted Matt at like one in the morning, Kim Jong-un is in a coma. 
mm-hmm. reportedly. So, uh, so apparently he's dying again. So if that happens, do you think that China is going to make a play to uh, dethrone the sister as the rightful heir, so to speak? Well, listen, China's going to do everything they can to exert influence in that area. I, I, I don't know that much about the current condition of Kim Jong-un uh, or who would replace him. As you said, uh, the, the conjecture is that his sister would do that, that she is also of the same mindset that her brother is and the ruthlessness that they portray. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that does happen, what China does. China will always make a play to have influence in that area. So if Kim Jong-un does uh, pass or if he is in that condition where he can't operate and his sister takes over, uh, I, I am confident that China will do everything that they can to try to influence that area of the world. Well, let me just address a question right quick. Um, your opponent apparently said something about decreasing military spending, which I would like to know what district he thinks he's running for office in, um, because that's your bread and butter. That's what employs your district. That's what takes care of your district. And so my question is, what do we not know about your opponent that you found out along the way? Well, listen, there's a, there's a lot of information that he has put out there through his tweets and through his Facebook. So I would urge people to go there and read his words. You know, there's always a lot of political back and forth about who says what. Uh, I will say this, uh, you know, he said things like he wants to redirect money from law enforcement. Uh, I look at that as defunding the police. He says, no, he doesn't want to defund the police. I think it's word games. Uh, I think if you want to redirect resources away from the police, it is defunding the police. He's talked about uh, not spending as much money on defense, which means taking the dollars away necessary to build defense capability. I think that those things are very problematic, especially in what we need to do in years to come. I know it'll be a challenge to increase defense spending. I'm, I'm realistic of that. But to be able to take dollars away, I think weakens our country. Uh, those things are, are not good. So, you know, I, I would encourage folks to, to, to look at his words, look at the things that he says uh, and, and gauge him on the words that he has put out there. And again, it's, it's all, it's all within, it's all, all within, with, 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 within the public, public sphere. So um, when it comes you know, to Congressman, when it comes to redirecting, when you said redirect funds from the police equivalent of defund the police, um, you did mention, I believe, in the town hall that you do you do encourage mental health um, mental health specialists to work in partnership with the police. How do we get them, I guess, to work in partnership or kind of pick up some of the slack that is put on our officers without redirecting funds? Absolutely. Well, there a couple of things happen. You know, in Virginia, we have a system of community services boards, and community services boards are meant to be that foundational level of help for folks with mental and behavioral health problems. So we assure that people will get that help. The good news too is in the 21st Century Cures Act that passed out of the Congress is we did dedicate additional dollars for mental and behavioral health. One of the things that local law enforcement does is to work in cooperation with our community services board. So if there's a situation where they know they're going to need assistance on a case where there's a patient that has exhibited mental or behavioral health issues, they have the ability to work as a team on those particular issues, especially if somebody continues to face the criminal justice system that really shouldn't be incarcerated. They should have 
mental and behavioral health treatment. So they're working there to make sure those folks get that treatment rather than end up in the criminal justice system. So listen, the, the local sheriff's departments, local law enforcement departments have extensive experience with that. And, and listen, they're, they're not trained to be themselves a mental health professional, but they are trained to make sure that they bring to bear the proper resources so that these individuals can get the help that they need to make sure that they don't end up in the criminal justice system, which is not the place they need to be in order to get mental and behavioral health services. So uh, listen, I, I think that they are, that they're very adept at that. Uh, the additional dollars that they need are actually for training. I'd like to see them get additional training so that they can do even more to help folks in these situations, get the help that they need. Uh, and, and again, they, they, are, they are trained to respond to a situation and again, you heard at the debate the other night, they are trained to de-escalate and, and they are trained to operate in a wide variety of conditions. Listen, a social worker or a mental health pro uh, professional is not trained to do that, nor do they want to go into a situation where things could turn into a different direction that they're not prepared for. They are very adept at helping folks through, through their situations, but not many times in a, in a tense field situation that law enforcement find themselves in. Law enforcement are trained to de-escalate. I, I, what I believe is that we can do more to help them, but ultimately I believe that decisions about how that happens are best placed in the hands of folks in those localities, the sheriffs, the police chiefs that have shown a tremendous ability to, to do a very difficult job and in most instances do it well. And, and when there are mistakes that are made, they wanna make sure that, that everybody's held accountable. So, Let's ask a question that's affecting everyone across Virginia, especially my people in Southwest Virginia, which you are a Virginia Tech alumni. I always like to point out you are a Hokie. Yeah. Hokie, go Hokies. <laughs> yes, and we play the best football in the Commonwealth. I always like to point that out. Um, yes. But uh, one of the things that is um, so important to rural areas is broadband. And so let's talk about broadband and what you're doing to bring that not only to you, the rural parts of your district, but to the rural parts of all Virginia, because everybody thinks that Virginia is just Virginia Beach and Richmond and Northern Virginia. There's a lot of Virginia that's not covered with mm -hmm. good access to internet. And that affects education. That affects, you know, mm -hmm. our economy. That affects everything. So let's ask that question. Absolutely, Matt. Well, you're right. I think at the top of the list of things, and I brought that up in the, in the, in the issues that are most important to folks in the first district, broadband is right there in that, in that top list. Broadband is key for our economy, especially with COVID-19, for businesses to operate in different ways. Broadband allows them to do that. If you are now a parent of a child that is looking at going to school in a virtual classroom, Broadband is critically important there uh, and the technology that goes along with it. In fact, you saw we had some interruptions in Zoom today and other, other uh, virtual platforms out there. I don't know what's behind that, but it, I do know that schools have started across the nation, many of them in a virtual setting. So we know the challenge that that's going to place on these systems. Also, I was just meeting the other day with a large telehealth consortium in the district. They're called Bay Telehealth Consortium of bringing providers, hospitals, uh, and, and healthcare organizations together to look at how do we do more with broadband to provide telehealth opportunities, especially with COVID-19. If a patient doesn't have to come in and potentially be subjected to getting COVID-19 and can still get care via a virtual uh, physician's visit, 
that's great for them. It helps us increase access and bring down costs. So I would say that it's incredibly important. Here are a number of the things that I've done through, through the years up to and including the efforts we're undertaking today. When I was on the local board of supervisors, we were able to get cable company to come into Westmoreland County uh, that provided uh, high speed uh, internet access. Uh, again, tens of thousands of people here in the county. Our population is near 18,000. They covered a wide swath of the county. Not everybody, but most everybody. And then when I was in the General Assembly, put a bill in that ultimately created a broadband authority so that localities could band together and leverage numbers and efforts to get broadband into their localities. Uh, in Congress, I am the chairman of the rural, excuse me, one of the co-chairs, so we'll, everybody there is equally as chairman, but a co-chair of the Rural Broadband Caucus, which is a group of us in Washington leading the effort on rural broadband. I've also uh, communicated with the administration concerning dollars in any of these relief packages that need to go to broadband. Also a co-sponsor and, and one of the originators of the concepts in the in the, in the MAPS Act and the Data Act, which says, first of all, internet service providers have to provide accurate information so we can draw accurate maps. If you don't have an accurate map, you don't know which areas are covered and which ones are not. To make it a requirement too, that those telecoms and ISPs, the telecommunications companies and the internet service providers provide accurate information so we can uh, develop these accurate maps. If they don't, then there's now a penalty for not providing accurate information. Also, the Serving Rural America Act, which puts $500 million over five years into joint projects in areas. So we, we create relationships between local government, state government, and internet service providers. So there's a public-private partnership there to accelerate investments. Uh, also, working with the Federal Communications Commission on the Rural Broadband Opportunity Fund or Rural Digital Opportunity Fund and getting those dollars out the door. There's $20.5 billion there. The first tranche of that money, the $16 billion, is going to start to go out the door or start to be solicited through proposals starting at the end of September at this year, beginning of October. So that'll be an effort that we were going to be on a call today with one of the FCC commissioners, unfortunately, with with Zoom being down for a while, we've had to reschedule that, but we've had fireside chats with Ajit Pai, who's the chairman of the FCC. We've had a number of people from different agencies, including Evan Feynman, who is the governor's uh, broadband coordinator. Uh, we've worked with their office on getting Virginia Telecommunications Initiative dollars out there. We have worked at every level. We've been supportive of a number of applications of localities trying to get dollars for rural broadband from Lancaster County to King George County to Stafford County. All of those counties are intimately involved in that. And if you look at this, this Matt, this really is a cooperative effort. It's a cooperative effort between our private internet service providers, between our counties, our state, and our federal government. The last thing we need to do is to turn that into a public utility to try to create a one size fits all. Because remember, we have lots of different technologies out there. Some folks are customers on wired networks with fiber optic. Some folks are customers on fixed wireless. Some folks are customers on mobile wireless. Some folks are, are, uh, are satellite customers. And if you're gonna try to turn it into a public utility, who's gonna be the winners and losers? And then what happens to customers if you don't happen to be in the, in the realm of where they say this has to be a public utility? And how do you determine what are service areas? There's are so many areas there. And then where does the money come from to do that? I argue it's much more effective to leverage 
federal dollars and state dollars and match that with private dollars and you can get things built much faster and much less expensively with more people that have an interest in getting that done than if you turn it into a public utility. And that's where I adamantly disagree with my opponent who says he wants to turn it into a public utility and then cannot identify where those dollars would come from. I think it's incredibly important to do everything we can to enhance the relationships we have now and to accelerate uh, federal dollars in the upfront investment in those systems. Because I think those companies are the best determiner of what a successful business plan would look like in the technologies that they apply. That is the path forward. And we have done quite a bit with that through the years, Matt. We're continuing to lead on that issue to make sure that we get broadband to as many people in the district as we can. And since I've been in Congress, we have had tens of thousands of new customers that are now broadband customers, and we have to do more. I would argue that uh, we have to do it at an even faster pace. And I think there are ways that we can do that. As you know, the, the effort by the governor says, let's do it in 10 years. I think we can do it in less than 10 years. And I think that the federal government can step up and do more to invest. The state can do more to invest. Localities can do more to invest, as well as the private sector. And if everybody steps up and does more, I think we can cut down that time significantly. In fact, there's no reason to believe we can't cut it in half to be able to get broadband to all areas, not only the first district, but across the Commonwealth. So let's ask a fun question because we've been real deep on policy. Um, you are a Hokie and that's the best, that's the best thing about you. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, you were in the Corps cadets at Virginia Tech. Yes. And had a roommate that we all now know and is a former guest of this podcast, um, Chairman Rich Anderson. And so yeah. you don't have any embarrassing stories on Rich because that would be pretty <laughs> funny. No, I don't. Rich, Rich, Rich and I have promised to, to, to keep the stories of our days together at Virginia Tech uh, between ourselves. But there was a lot of fun. These are all and fun. And he's chairman now, so he could, you yeah. know. <laughs> he is. Love on Rich, Rich, wasn't, Rich wasn't a roommate in being in the same room as myself, but he was right across the hall from me. So I saw him on a daily basis. He and I were in the same company. We were both in Bravo Company there in the Corps Cadets, Bravo Company, 1st Battalion. Uh, and and uh, he was a few years senior than I was. So I was a freshman when he was a senior. So there was uh, the freshman system, or as they call the rat system. So there were times when he was, he, he was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty pointed in, in what happened between Rich and myself. And as he will tell people today, he said, you know, if Rob, if I'd have known you were going to be a congressman, I would have treated you very differently. I said, no, Rich, you would not have. You would have treated me just like <laughs> else because that's the way it's supposed to be. And, well, and he, one, one, last, one last question before we go. You were known as the breakfast guy, right? Mm -hmm. you, yes. you almost single-handedly, I would say, won that campaign because you're like, I eat breakfast here. And that was on every ad from Fredericksburg to Richmond was mm -hmm. you eating breakfast. What is your favorite breakfast item and where's your favorite breakfast place in the first district? Oh gosh, there, there, there are a bunch of great breakfast places across the, 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 the first district. My, my favorite breakfast item is either one or two things. I like English muffins. Okay. Love oatmeal. So, so whatever, whatever place uh, offers the best of those, I'm, I'm all in on that. And, you know, listen, we, we've got a lot, a lot of great restaurants, a little, a little mom and pop areas. With COVID-19, things have changed immensely. You know, the, the sit-down breakfast areas are very different today. 
but but I want to emphasize this. You know, it's not only the, the 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 nice community restaurants where you can go and eat breakfast, but in our district, especially in the rural areas, you know, there's there are not those sit down to eat places, but there are many fast food franchises. And then those become places where people gather, whether it's a McDonald's, and this isn't a, an endorsement of McDonald's or a Hardee's, but I also go to those places because you see a lot of folks in the community there in the morning and they are there not only to enjoy breakfast, but to really talk about the issues at hand. If you wanna learn about what's going on in a rural community, you stop by a local McDonald's in the morning to have breakfast and you see the number of people in there. You stop by a local Hardee's, you stop by, now Wendy serves breakfast. You stop by Burger King, any of them, and you will come across people that are the heart and soul of their communities talking about things that are important to them. I tell folks, if you, if you want to have a great listening tour to understand what's going on in an area, stop in one of those restaurants in the morning and you will get an earful about what's happening on a daily basis in those great communities. Well, I think as we're, we're excited to have you on, I didn't know the thing about breakfast, but I did know... Um, I hope, I hope we get to play college football this season because I, I know you're a big Hokie football fan. And so I, do you think we'll get to play or what are your, any thoughts on that or? Well, Matt, I hope so too. I, I, I hope that the ACC, I know the ACC and the SEC are intending to play. I know that the thing is the PAC 12 and the big 10 have decided not to play. Uh, I, I hope they do. I, I think there's a lot of things that we're dealing with. I think there's a lot of excitement in college football. I think these young student athletes put a lot of effort into preparing for the season. I, I think that you can properly protect those athletes. I think too, with what schools can do to manage uh, crowds that come to those facilities, greatly reducing the crowds, ensuring social distancing. I, I still think that you can have that. I, I think people want in the strongest way possible to have things that they can look forward to and enjoy. College football is one of those. I think, too, they look at these student athletes and want to make sure that they are protected. And I believe firmly that places like Virginia Tech and the ACC and SEC schools, and for that matter, all schools, I do believe that they can properly protect athletes and assure that those athletes can have the opportunity to play and that the alumni and admirers and fans of those schools can also enjoy uh, what I think is a great fall tradition and that's college football. Do you have right. a favorite place in Blacksburg? Just as a, do you have uh, a favorite, do you have a little favorite dive in Blacksburg? Cause there's so many good ones. Gosh, you know, so, so much has changed. I don't, I don't get back to Blacksburg as much as I, as I used to, but you know, I used to go to, to, uh, to places downtown and, and, uh, and just enjoy it. There's, there's a whole aura in going downtown. You know, when I used to walk there as a student, whether it was, oh, Mr. Foos, and, and I'm telling my age now, Mr. Foos or top of the stairs or those kinds of places, the downtown area was just, just fantastic. Dave's Hot Dogs, those areas. You know, I used to love going downtown. The downtown area still has that aura to it. So I think going to any of those areas downtown, just walking around, seeing the students there and enjoying uh, what Blacksburg truly is. It, is. it is small town America. And it's great because of the college small town atmosphere. So I just enjoy going there. And you know, places change uh, and people change, but Blacksburg really has in many ways stayed the same with its atmosphere and its, and its uh, great, uh, great uh, conditions and, and, and opportunities for families to come there and enjoy 
uh, what's special about a small college town. Well, Rob, thanks for joining us. It's really been fun having you on. And, um, you know, we really, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and just chatting with us. And really, come on any time. We're here. Well, we appreciate you talking about hokey football. I mean. <laughs> and breakfast. Well, Mike, thank you. And Matt, thank you. I am, I am a true, uh, true through and through hokey fan, whether it's, uh, you know, and when I have a chance to talk to Dr. Sands, who's doing a great job there, or Whit Babcock, the athletic director, or the football coach, uh, Justin Fuente, they are all doing a great job. And the neat thing with, with all that we're going through, they want what's best for the student athlete. They want what's best for Virginia Tech. They, they, they truly are those quintessential servant leaders. And Mike, thank you. Thanks for all you do. It's a great opportunity. Thanks for coming out to the, uh, and listening to the debate the other night. That yeah, was no problem. Yeah. All right. And all right. We, we thank you all for listening. We are actually going to have later this week, we are going to have, uh, funny we mentioned it, Rich Anderson come on. And he's <laughs> giving us a report of the national convention. So that's our next episode that comes out probably Monday or Tuesday of next week. So we appreciate y'all listening and